just thinking about the communion we just partook in, and I'm glad that we do that as regularly as we, regularly as we do that. I didn't do that that often growing up, and, and um, the only thing is just like they say, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. We forget to insert the word styrofoam there for the right it's like styrofoam someday maybe when we're not in the theater we'll do like an actual um with matzah maybe that'd be really fun so someday someday we're in uh harmony of the gospels this is week 49 and we're all in john's gospel again this week so john 8 31 to 59 and um as I thought about this passage this week, it occurred to me, <clears throat> we talk a lot. I mean, this, we talk a big game as Americans about freedom. And even as Christians, we talk a lot about freedom, and, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. Freedom is defined as the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without any hindrance or any restraint. I'm, I'm glad we have that freedom. I'm grateful for it. It is the absence of subjection to domination. And I think all of us would agree that's a good thing. We are at, we don't, we don't, we're not subjected to domination in our culture at this moment in time. That could change. That could change. But when I say freedom, I'm just wondering, maybe just a couple of you, what, what immediately came into your mind? What images uh, what pictures came to, to you, said freedom, you immediately had, you're a visual person, eagle, okay, bald eagle, yeah, 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 American, America, American flag, waving in the breeze, right, oh, the don't tread on me flag, yeah, 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 okay, okay, what did you say, William Wallace, yeah, okay, Robert, what are you, Braveheart, yeah, yeah, and you go home and put some blue paint on your face. Is that, is that the plan this afternoon? Because um, I'll join you if you're going to, I'm just saying. The cross. Yeah. That's a, that's a culturally a very counterintuitive answer. But I think, yeah, obviously the cross brings freedom. I, I, I think like many of you, when I hear the word freedom, I think of William Wallace who helped free Scotland from British rule. I think of uh, men like George Washington, Ben Franklin, others who fought for American independence. I, I think of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Beecher Stowe and Sojourner Truth and the people who worked to abolish slavery in our country. These are, these are just some of the things that come into my mind and maybe yours as well when we think about the concept of freedom. And, and these are good and they're right examples of freedom but they don't encompass the totality, the totality of that word or concept. Um, freedom has application in other ways that sometimes we forget or neglect. It's not, see, it's not always freedom to something. Freedom to do what I want to do. Freedom to say what I want to say. There is a freedom from something and there is a freedom to something. And, and those are, it goes both ways, right? Let me, let me give you an example of, um, so we, we, what we're talking about when we talk about freedom as, a, as Americans, usually we're talking about freedom from, right? From tyranny, from oppression. Here, here's what I want us to focus on freedom to this morning. 
Um, I'll give you an ex example that I learned very early in my college years as a music major. Now, I was a vocal major, but we had, in the department, we had people who were majoring in all kinds of different instruments, and we had a couple of people in particular who were piano performance majors. That's impressive. It's impressive. Just to see them practice is impressive. And, and so a, a concert pianist is free in a way that you and I are not. Unless, of course, you're a closet concert pianist. But, but they're, they're free in a way that we're not free. Do you understand? That person can sit down and play Chopin effortlessly from memory, and, I, and none of us could do that. We're not free to do that. So just stop and think about that for a moment. When, I, when I'm able to sit down at the keyboard, we have a piano in our house, and I can hammer out chord progressions with the finesse of a sledgehammer, basically. And, 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 and a truly accomplished concert pianist is far more free than I am to make some of the most beautiful music on earth. They have a freedom that I don't have. They have a freedom that you don't have. And here's the real kicker. The freedom that that pianist is enjoying only came through long, hard hours of constraint and rigorous effort. That seems so paradoxical to us. I want to just sit down and I just want to magically be able to play the piano. It doesn't work like that. And yes, I'm saying that there's a certain kind of freedom that only comes from and is built on hard work and effort. The freedom enjoyed by the best musicians in the world only comes through restraint in some areas. They have to say no to some things in order to gain the skill set that they're hoping to gain. And, and, and so it's, it's contrary to popular belief, you can't have it all. You can't. Anything that you want in life, regardless of its value, will cost you something. It'll cost you something else that maybe you wanted, but you have to make a decision, right? And so anything, anything again, you, you, you want in life is going to cost you. Our fight in this life is to gain true freedom. And, and, that, and that fight to gain freedom finds its start and its ending in the person of Jesus Christ and no one else. That's the place of true freedom. And surrendering your life to him is like uh, the door that a person walks through to begin their journey. They're going to walk through the door and begin a journey, and that's the place of surrender. So with that paradigm, with this paradigm of freedom, we're free to and we're free from. Let's, let's look at uh, this example of freedom. We'll go to the text here this morning in John 8. And so we're, we're in John 8, 31, all the way down to verse 59. And we'll just take it a little chunk at a time here. So, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets us free. So, but what does that mean? To, to, how are we supposed to abide in Christ's words? Well, I think at the very least, we need to be daily ingesting God's word, taking his word into ourselves, into our minds, into our lives. And, and so that, that, that's, that's a just baseline, right? It's just baseline that we would take God's word in and consider 
what it means for us, how it applies to our lives. And, and, and then beyond that, how does it apply to the people around me? How, did, how does this affect how I have a relationship with my wife, my spouse, my kids, my neighbors? That's, that's abiding, right? Because Christianity is communal in nature. It's communal. And I mean, I mean that in the sense that all of us who claim a new birth in Christ are now a faith family. Yeah, you, maybe some of you didn't know that. You're like, oh, man, really? I'm stuck with you forever? Yes. Yes. If you're born again, you're stuck with me forever. Fortunately, we're all going to be glorified. And probably some of the dad jokes will cease at that point, but maybe not. Maybe there'll be glorified dad jokes. I don't know. Hang around. Let's find out, right? Christianity is communal, and that means we're supposed to support and love one another as the body of Christ. And, and when there's sin, we're to correct and rebuke one another, right? And restore one another. And this is, this is part of what we call discipleship. It's the building of disciples, not just the gaining of knowledge. Oh, please, don't ever make that mistake in the church. Don't ever come to church just to get knowledge, because Scripture says knowledge puffs up, but love is what builds up, right? And so we want to love one another, and that's why Christianity is communal, because it gives us an opportunity to commune with one another and to live life with one another and do life together and sometimes bump up against each other or disagree or have conflict and then resolve it because that's what Christ calls us to, right? And in all of that, we're being built up. We're being sanctified by the Lord. And so this is what we call discipleship, not just the gaining of knowledge about the faith, but the experience of living out our faith together as a community. That's what Christ has called us to. This is why life groups are such a high value here at Emmaus Road, because there's far more happening in your life than you even realize when you get into a life group and you start building community with people, that's, that's incredible. That's, that's what God calls us to. And it's just one aspect of being a disciple of Jesus, that he wants us in community. He wants that accountability for our lives. We're in those groups and we're talking about what's happening in our lives and other people are speaking into that or praying for you. And that's so important. It's so important because discipleship is an abiding condition. <clears throat> it is staying close to our shepherd and it's caring for one another. So this is, the, this is the problem. Even in a church as small as our church, it's not a huge church, right? We're, we're maybe, we're less than 100 people. But even in a church this size, people get the idea where the pastor's supposed to care for everybody and come check on everybody. And it's like, no, 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 no. The body of Christ cares for itself. We, we get into each other's lives. And, and yeah, there's sometimes I need to, the, I, I'm needed, right? I need to step into a situation. I need to call a person, you know, but it's not, it's not on the, the top tier leadership. It's everybody in the body of Christ caring for the body of Christ. So discipleship, right? This whole experience, uh, staying close to our shepherd and caring for each other. It's, it's about a life given over to Jesus, a lifestyle of pressing into him to know Jesus more. And then what happens primarily through his word in the community of faith are those experiences, right? And those experiences are great, but it's the word that's our sustenance. So abiding is a lifestyle of worship and obedience. It's not an act that you perform. 
It's not something that you muscle up, right? It's, it's, a, it's a lifestyle of obedience. It's, it's ongoing. It's continual. And it will be until the moment you stand before the Lord Jesus face to face. It will be continual. Now, there's another reality related to abiding in Christ. is the pursuit of abiding uh, necessitates this thing the Bible calls covenant. And here's what I mean by that. God doesn't operate in commitments. And he doesn't operate in contracts. Because when you, you look at humanity, you look at the way we treat commitments. Commitments are usually predicated on feelings in the moment. I'm going to make a commitment to do this thing. And then I got home and then I didn't really want to go back to that person's house and help them. And uh, I just don't feel like it. Right. But the commitments are easily broken. Contracts are broken every, every day by people who promised to keep them and even signed the contract. We break them every day, but covenant, <clears throat> covenant is an exchange of lives. It's not just a promise to do a thing. It's exchange of lives, okay? Covenant, if you'll notice, whenever covenant is cut in the Bible, an animal is killed and bled out, which means it's a big deal. Something has to die. There's a, there's a blood element to covenant. And so the two parties in, in the Old Testament, and you, you can see this back in Genesis 15, they'll walk that path where the blood has pooled. There'll be two little slopes and the, the blood will pool in the middle. And both parties walk that blood path. And, and so it, what they're saying is, uh, basically, may it be done unto me and my descendants forever as has been done to these animals if I ever break covenant. And the first time we see that, again, Genesis 15 with Abram, and God, it's so funny because God, God says, look, this is a unilateral covenant. It's not a you and me covenant. Actually, you can't keep the covenant, so I'm going to put you to sleep. And then I'm going to walk the blood path both times for both of us because you can't do it. That's our God. That's our God. He says, I got you. I got you. There's grace. You can't possibly keep my law. There's grace. We talk about covenant as it pertains to marriage. We're the bride of Christ. He's our bridegroom. And I know that's weird for the dudes in the room, usually to talk about us being the bride of Christ. But, but actually marriage is a picture of, of abiding as the church with Jesus. It's, it's beautiful. And we are the bride of Christ and he is our bridegroom. And incidentally, this is why God hates divorce because it messes up the picture of what he's given us, right? That covenant relationship is for life. And with Jesus, it goes well beyond this life and into the life to come. Like, man, every time I think about it, every time I say it in a sermon, like my, my mind starts to imagine and then I get like all choked up, right? Because I just can't wait. Abiding in Christ also includes the necessity of truth. And I mean, objective truth, not subjective feelings or impressions when you put the word my before truth, you don't have truth. You have your own subjective opinion. I don't know if you guys hear that in the, like out in the world. Well, let me just tell you what my truth is. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're no longer talking about truth. See, God's word is truth. And we can see here in the passage how Jesus carefully nurtures and encourages the beginning of grace as, as he meets people right where they are on their journey 
towards him and, and just brings them along, right? So here Jesus gives us a character, gives us the character of a true disciple of Christ. If you continue, if you abide in his word, then you are truly a disciple. And the clear implication is that there are some who claim to be followers and disciples of Jesus, but they are not true disciples because they do not abide in his word. That's his watermark. That's his standard. We are to abide if we want to be his disciples. So verse 33, the, the religious leaders here in Israel answered Jesus, and they said, they're indignant, right? Because they're, they're a little puffed up. We're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? See, the Jews were really hung up on the idea of freedom versus slavery. And it's ironic because they're under Roman occupation, right? They're under Roman occupation at this time, though not enslaved, they are not free. They are not free. And, and so one only has to look at the back, uh, look back at the end of Genesis and, and then read through the book of Exodus and see that the Jews had been slaves. They had been enslaved. But maybe these Jews are speaking of their generation specifically. We give them that. Um, but again, they're, they're not enslaved, but neither are they truly free. So if you stop and think about it, this is true of many Americans as well. We talk about being a free society. We're free. We, we love freedom. We love to wave the flag and, and the eagle flies over you know, with this, the, the scream that the eagle does, it's just so cool. And then we're like, yeah, freedom. And, and so it's like, okay, but, but only Jesus and his finished work on the cross bring true freedom. We, that's the only source of true freedom. And, and so that, that means that Jesus grants the individual salvation. That's where freedom comes into this. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone, some version of, um, especially when I was growing up in the South. Well, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian family. Well, newsflash, that's not going to cut it when you stand before King Jesus, right? Your family lineage will not save you. And as I've said before, God ain't never had a grandchild. It's bad grammar, but it's good theology. But the protests on this particular issue continue in the American church. Well, I go to church, therefore I'm a Christian. That's like saying, I swim while holding my breath, therefore I'm a dolphin. It's, it's a category error. It's like, well, I climbed a tree yesterday, therefore I'm a monkey. No, it doesn't follow logically that because you swam with your, holding your breath that you're a dolphin right? And it doesn't follow logically that because you went to church and your body was present in the room that you are a Christian, right? That's a decision. That's a very deliberate decision that a person engages in mentally, emotionally, spiritually to trust the Lord Jesus fully. That's what gets you there. It doesn't logically follow that because you've been in church or you've been exposed to the gospel that you are therefore saved and thus a Christian. A person is not saved by proximity to the gospel. A person is not saved by osmosis. You cannot go to sleep tonight with an open Bible on your face and wake up as a Christian. 
That's not how it works. Salvation is an offer that is given from the Lord Jesus and one that only an individual can respond to personally. You have to respond. If you haven't already, you have to respond personally to the offer of salvation. And so I just, I just stop and ask you, before we go any further, have you? Are you saved? Have you been saved? I just want to say, if you're struggling with that, if you're wrestling with that, I'd love to buy your coffee or buy lunch this week and, and, and settle, we can talk through and settle that issue in your heart. Please take me up on that offer, please. I, I really would uh, enjoy sitting and talking with you about this. But Jesus, Jesus says to them in verse 34, he answered them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Then. So Jesus highlights the disparity between being a son, a legitimate heir, versus being a slave in that culture. And just like us at this present time, we don't have the fullness of our inheritance yet yet. But we know it's coming because we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are saved and therefore we are adopted children of God. And the point is slaves don't inherit anything. They don't inherit at all. Only sons and daughters inherit. So have you been, again, this is, this is a salvific issue. Have you been adopted into the family of God? Here's how the apostle Paul explains it in Romans 8, and it's a little chunk here, but follow me. Paul says, there is now there, there, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, you're under a law. You're either under the law of sin and death or you're under the law of, of Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, Right? For God has done what the law, which was weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, Paul says to the Roman Christians he's writing to, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. In fact, if, 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 if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, this body is wasting away. You realize that, right? Yeah, some of the younger folks are like, really? I, I, I like that. I can run. I can, yeah, just wait. And the knees give out. You don't run anymore, right? Yeah. And so it's just, yeah, this, so, so if Christ is in you, though your body's dead because, because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead 
dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. He's saying there's going to be a resurrection. Our bodies are going to be raised and changed, imperishable. So he goes on, verse 12. Paul says, so brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For everybody who's led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba. You know what Abba means? Daddy. Daddy. How many of you have raised little children? How many of you fathers have come home from work after a long day and that little toddler? Daddy. That's exactly what Paul said right here. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So, so coming, take all that back into John, back into John chapter 8. Here's verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet, Jesus says, you're trying to kill me because my word finds no place in you. This, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And the curse gives us our explanations to what's being said. God created man and woman. He put them in the garden to tend it. They ceded their delegated authority and mandate to the serpent, and they sinned against God. So sin entered the world. It touches everything, and it separates us from God himself. And instead of unbroken communion and relationship with the God who made us, we are cut off in sin. But God foresaw this, and he made a way of reconciliation for us. What the law could never do, grace accomplished. Most of the Jewish people, even to this day, have not truly understood what it means to be offspring or the seed of Abraham, and they do not realize that they're missing out on God's covenant relationship through Jesus' sacrifice. From this, it's clear that Jesus' entire discourse in this section of John 8 is meant to show the Jews that they are not the seed of God, as they thought, but they're actually acting as the seed of the serpent, who's going to bruise the heel of Messiah very shortly. But it goes deeper than that. As we see in verse 44 coming up, let's, let's keep reading in the text, uh, 38 uh, to 41. I speak, Jesus says, of what I've seen with my Father, and you, and, and, excuse me, and, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Contrast, two different fathers here, right? They answered and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I've heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Don't miss that insult being leveled at Jesus. Yeah, we know your father, father. They're accusing Jesus of being a bastard. And I know that's a strong word we don't use, but you need to feel the level of hatred, spite, indignation that they have for this man, Jesus. And as if the insult wasn't sufficient, 
like spoiled children taunting someone on the playground. They follow up with their version of my dad could beat up your dad. Our dad's better than your dad. They have no idea what they're talking about. None, which is so ironic. And so Jesus, verse 42, says to them, guys, if God was your father, you would love me. For I came from God and, I, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. So funny. This ties right into Isaiah 11 and this prophecy that was given to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, where he says, There will come a shoot, come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight, God's delight shall be, uh, this person's delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or disputes, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Now, I don't know if you caught it, but that, those four verses encompass all time. From the beginning of creation to the, to the kingdom that's coming. Jesus is going to do these things. He's the stump of Jesse. He's, he's going to be the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of understanding. All these things happen in the incarnation of Jesus. And then there's this part at the end of Isaiah 11, 4 that, that, that hasn't come to pass yet. And they can't, and these, these, these Jewish leaders, they, they knew the scriptures. They have memorized the Old Testament, but they couldn't bear the sting of the rod. They could not accept his words, and therefore they did not understand the way of speaking that he used with them. But Jesus continues in verse 44. He says, you, this is the most direct he's been with them in this discourse. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his character for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. Satan is our enemy. He's a very real personage. He is a very real being or entity. And we need to understand that he's not just a concept. He's a real person. He's not just some literary personification of evil that we've invented. His fall from glory and, and, and his backstory, you can read it in Isaiah 14. You can read it in Ezekiel 28. You can read it in John 10. He's a real person and he hates us and he's opposed to us and he would do anything in his power to stop us and kill us. And this is the person Jesus says is animating the religious, religious leaders of, of Israel at that time in opposition to him. Verse 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. The carnal, unregenerated mind cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. And this is because they can only be understood by the Spirit. 
And you need to have that. You need to have the Holy Spirit in you to understand what the Spirit has said through the Word of God, right? In relationship to Him, and that relationship is predicated on salvation. We keep coming back to this. I don't know if you noticed. It's like without salvation, none of this makes sense. You're not going to be able to work it out. And this is the reason, by the way, why I always pound the drum of evangelism, right? Because the only way, this is so, so we have to preach the gospel because it's the only way that regeneration comes to a person. We've got to preach the gospel. And that, that's the only way that a person can come into right relationship with Jesus and so be saved. It's, a, it's incumbent upon the church who already has the gospel to take the gospel to those who don't have the gospel. I, I just I don't, I don't think it's any more complicated than that. It's scary, but it's not any more complicated than that. And so the Jews answered him and said, are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan? You have a demon? Jesus said, I don't have a demon but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I heard someone say just recently that as people in Western civilization, we would never, I, I, I just, I heard this person say this and I just had to kind of bite my, you ever have to just kind of bite something to keep from saying something? So, um, this person said, um, in Western civilization, we would never as a culture think of deliberately dishonoring Jesus so as to slap him in the face. And I was just like, oh, really? Have you looked around lately? And we don't have to talk about the results we see all around us. We can simply talk about the roots that wriggled into Western culture and civilization and began undermining the Judeo-Christian foundation. What do you think Darwinian evolution is? What do you think secularism is about? It's nothing less than a belief that everything came from nothing. There was just some big bang and then birds, fish, people, food, light, everything else. Magic. We call that a just so story. Oh, the story sounds just so. It's, yeah, okay, I, I think I can buy into that. But it's a myth. It's a myth that our culture is largely, largely accepted and believed upon. That man is just another animal that came crawling out of the primordial ooze. That's really dangerous, actually. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? What he believes about himself determines how he acts. And that's what we're seeing today. It's really dangerous. Is it any wonder that so many people in our culture are acting like animals? Because they've been told that they're just animals. So many people given over to their most base impulses to do what ought not to be done. Well, that's what animals do. Western civilization has swallowed this lie, and now we're seeing the consequences on display every day all around us. Verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge, Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, well, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
See, these Jews can't conceive of anyone who would be greater than Abraham except God himself. And on this point, we agree with the Jews. Jesus came as God wrapped in flesh and was, in every way, greater than Abraham. And so Jesus answers in verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He's our God. But you've not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so then the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, yeah. Not too long ago, on a mountain, not far from here, Elijah was there too. He didn't say that. But if I had been there, I'd have, oh, darn it, right? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ego a me. I am that I am. Do you know what he just said? I'm the God of Abraham. And that's why, verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew exactly what he was saying. No confusion here. Jesus claimed to be the God of Abraham. Jesus could not lie and deny his true knowledge of God the Father. Jesus had consistently demonstrated by a life of obedience to the, to the Father's word that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. Jesus claimed that not only was he greater than Abraham, but that Abraham also acknowledged this fact. But when did Abraham exult to see the day of Christ? I believe was it was when he said to Isaac on their way to the place of sacrifice in Genesis 22, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Do you know that passage? Right? They're, they're, they're going up. He's, he's going to go offer a sacrifice to God. God has said to Abram quietly in private, I want you to offer your son, your one and only son. And Isaac doesn't know, but he's starting to clue in as they go along. You read the passage like, uh, hey, Dad, I see the wood for the offering. Where's the sacrifice? And, and Dad says, um, God's going to provide the sacrifice. And he does. Now, it's interesting, by the way, just as an aside, Genesis 22, you go home and read that passage. This is your homework this week, okay? Read Genesis 22. Um, they're sacrificing a lamb. They've gone to sacrifice a lamb. Do you know what was caught in the thicket? A ram. Just, just some animal husbandry here. A ram is not a lamb. You understand? God will sacrifice himself, comma, a lamb. This is a foreshadowing of the cross. Abraham specifically said, God will provide himself a lamb, and on the cross at Calvary he did. So the scene ends here. The curtain closes at the end of John 8. Jesus has publicly proclaimed truth and now expressly proclaimed that he is God in the flesh. He has come. He is the great I am. And the Jews reject him, though he offers true freedom, not from the Roman occupation, but from sin. And they have chosen bondage. It's a pretty stark contrast as we close chapter 8. 
So let me just summarize this for you. And we're going to do something today that we haven't done in a while. Um, I hope it's awkward for you um, because awkward things stick in your brain better, right? Um, I wanted to say truth leads to freedom. Truth leads to freedom. And here are just, we, we've been through the last two weeks of John 8. I, I can't find a more condensed place where Jesus has said more true things in such a, such a compacted, you know, section of scripture. And so um, just some of the things Jesus said in this passage this morning, he said, the truth will set you free. Do you know how the Germans said that in World War II? Arbeit macht frei. That phrase was scrawled on the sign at the entrance of the concentration camp known as Auschwitz. In English, that phrase, Arbeit macht frei, means work will make you free. Work will set you free. If you just work hard enough, long enough, you can go free. And the Nazis meant it. If you worked in the concentration camps long enough, hard enough, you'd die. Whether by disease, malnourishment, gas chamber, being shot for the support of the guards, you'd be freed. And in this way, the Nazis of World War II clearly demonstrate for us the fallacy of any kind of works-based attempts at salvation. If you just work hard enough, you'll go free. You'll be free. You can't. You can't. These evil men, these Nazis encouraged lots of hard work because all that hard work would eventually make you free. And the poor Jews in the camp at first didn't realize it was a setup from the beginning. You can never do enough work there to gain your freedom in that brutal system. But they dangled the possibility of freedom in front of people to keep them working and keep them in line. And this is very similar to the picture Paul paints in Ephesians 2, but with a light at the end of the tunnel. You can't work your way out of hell. You can put your faith in Jesus. You can't do enough good works to get God to grant you access to heaven, but you can put your faith in Jesus. All of your hard work will not make you free. Only Jesus. Only faith in Jesus. In fact, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in, once you, in, in which you once walked, when you were following the, the course, the way of this world, you were actually following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan, right? Among whom we all once lived. And, and Paul saying, I'm not better than you. We all once lived there in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, that's a powerful phrase. <laughs> but God, God stepped in being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and stinky and sinful and rolling around in the mud, right? Even then, he made us alive together with Christ. By, by grace, you've been saved. And then, he, and then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not because of your works. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, 
so that nobody can boast. You're not going to get to heaven and see Jesus and see the Father and be like, <laughs> I made it. I, I worked hard every day, and here I am, Lord. Aren't you proud of me? Never going to happen. Nobody will ever say that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of your doing. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means good works are a part of our faith, but not to earn salvation, but as a result of our salvation. They're the overflow of the goodness and grace of God in our lives, not to earn anything, but because we've already received it. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And that means you and I, who are already saved this morning, we, we have put our faith in Christ alone for salvation. We need to abide in Him. We need to rest in Him. We need to just live in that place of abiding in His Word. So the truth will set you free. Here's number two, and we'll wrap this up. Jesus is the light of the world. It's the only way we see truth. We can't see light. Did you know this? I don't know, a little physics this morning. Did you know that you can't see light? The light that's in this room, you can't actually see the light. You see what the light touches. It's interesting because, we, like we talked about last week, sometimes light acts like a wave. Sometimes light acts like a particle. And all that means when you get to right down to the bare bones is that even particle physicists and all these guys don't actually know what light is. We don't know. We know how it acts. We know what it does. It illuminates what it touches. And I think that's a really great handhold for this concept. It what, it, what it touches, it illuminates. When God's Word touches your life, it illuminates you. It brings light to you, understanding, freedom. And so I want us to do a responsive reading as we, as we finish this morning. And uh, like I said, I haven't, we haven't done this in a long time. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read a short passage, and then some words are going to appear on the screen that we will all say together in response to what I just read. So the first one, Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. Without God's self-revelation through his word, we would still be blind and without hope. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah 16, 1-3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Unless the gospel goes forth. Yeah, it's there. <laughs> the world remains in darkness. Send us. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
God's light is more than substance, more than an idea. God's light is a person, and he has made his light known to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. One more, John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We believe and affirm that Jesus is the true light sent by the Father. His light illuminates our lives and our minds, and it is by him that we see clearly. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him. The truth of God's word is what sets you free. Jesus is the light of the world more than just an idea. Jesus is the God-man who took our place, who took the wrath of God upon himself that we might go free. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, but the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. So take that light out into the darkness of our world and let it shine through you. And make sure that you are always ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. Make King Jesus known to anyone who will listen. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent. Mm -hmm.